We're going to continue together with a series of talks called The Trial. We're in the fifth part this morning of our talks on a series called The Trial. And the story or the case before the court this morning is this. Percy Utah was renowned for his flamboyant and aggressive courtroom manner. He was regarded as a true South African patriot and lauded as a scourge of the liberation movements, particularly the African National Congress, or ANC, led by one Nelson Mandela. He denounced the ANC as a communist-dominated terrorist organization, and he worked closely with the security police who held him in high regard. In this particular courtroom, in the summer of 1963, these two men, Mandela and Utah, had set themselves up as enemies. Mandela willing to die for his cause, and Utah willing to kill to stop him. During the lengthy trial, Utah pushed hard for Mandela to receive a death sentence for his crimes. On the 12th of June, 1964, Mandela was found guilty. However, not being able to make the case for high treason, he was spared the death penalty and instead received a life imprisonment on Robin Island. 30 years later, Nelson Mandela, not only free, but now the country's president, took the remarkable step of summoning his old enemy to meet him. What fate could Utah expect now from his extremely powerful old foe? He was an effectively an enemy of the state now. To his amazement, Utah was greeted with a lavish lunch and the attention and kindness of the president. Furthermore, despite having tried to have Mandela killed, Mandela made it clear that Utah received not just his hospitality, but his love and his forgiveness. It's a wonderful, true story. And for me, what particularly spoke to me through that story was I imagine Utah would have felt all the more loved and forgiven and honored in light of what he once was. In light of what he once was. And my suggestion this morning is that we don't know often how much we're loved until we realize what we once were. Or to put it a different way, you don't know how much you're loved because you don't know how much of an enemy you once were. And we're looking each week, aren't we, at one different aspect of the gospel as Paul presents it in the book of Romans. We call it the trial because Paul is using a legal framework, a legal lens through which he's explaining the nature of the Christian gospel. We've had four talks so far in each of the four chapters and this is the fifth in the fifth chapter. And I will put it to you that Paul has a very similar point to make this morning. That we don't know how much we're loved because we don't know how much of an enemy we once were. So, with that in mind, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 10 is our passage this morning. And let's see Paul unpack this premise. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul is making the suggestion, or the statement, or the premise, that we don't know how much we're loved because... We don't know how much of an enemy we once were. And I would argue that this statement is true for many people today. 
Whether we're a new Christian, whether we've been a Christian for a long time, whether we're exploring the claims of the Christian faith, whether we're a complete skeptic about the claims of the Christian faith, I would suggest everybody on that spectrum doesn't actually know just how loved they are because they don't know how much of an enemy they once were. But before we go any further, I guess we need to just kind of pause and take a pit stop and recognize the reality of the difficulty of a statement like that. This statement of people being enemies of God is a hard one, isn't it? Like at best, that's a confounding one. And frankly, at worst, it's a deeply offensive one to many, many modern people. And there are good reasons for why it's at best confounding and at worst deeply offensive. Like just one example, I guess all of us are, of course, appalled at the actions of ISIS in the Middle East and their, and their murderous ways. And of course, the thing that seems to motivate their murderous ways is they believe very strongly that those whom they are persecuting and oppressing are enemies of God. So that phrase is a difficult one for us. Slightly less dramatic, perhaps, but a bit closer to home. The church, the Christian church, over the decades, over the centuries, has at times given off the, the notion, the atmosphere, that God is simply an angry figure consistently disapproving of humanity, frustrated at our inability to meet his demands. And anyone who can't behave as the church does is unwelcome at best and, frankly, an enemy at worst. And so for reasons like that, and many, many other reasons, many, many modern people will understandably dismiss the notion that people could be enemies of God. But Paul, who's writing this letter in Romans, uh, one of the first churches in the first century, he has a very different view. You see, he, neither does he buy in to the, the modern mindset that there, it, there could not be such a thing as an enemy of God. He doesn't dismiss that possibility. But equally, he doesn't buy into a harsh, severe view of an exclusively angry, disapproving God whom only us moral people can get to know and everybody else is effectively an enemy of. He doesn't buy into either view. Actually, he's got a very different premise. Paul, on the one hand, wants to talk about the truth of people being enemies with God, unlike many, many modern people today. But he wants to do it in order to demonstrate the magnificence of the love of God, unlike other people today. Do you see? He's operating from a very different principle. Let me show you why I think this is the case. If you look in, your, in the text in your Bibles or, or on the screen, you'll notice that at the beginning of the passage in verse 6, what's the first word that Paul uses? He uses the word for. So that means that he's building, isn't he, upon a previously asserted statement. He's saying, and because of what I've just said, this. So... What's he just said? Well, in verse 5, the previous verse, he made the statement that God's love has been poured into our hearts. So he must be building upon that premise of the love of God. Agreed? And then in verse 8, it says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it's fascinating to me that Paul is of the opinion that the best way for everyone on that spectrum of, of, of skeptic to committed Christian, wherever you might be, he believes that for everyone, wherever you are on that spectrum, the best way of understanding the magnificence of the love of God is to understand what it was to be an enemy of God. You won't know how much you're loved until you know how much of an enemy you once were. Let me tell you a story to try and explain what I'm, what I'm getting at. 
Uh, I used to play a lot of sport when I was, when I was a, a boy or, or a teenager, some of you would know, and some of you would also know I hated to lose. I had a terrible, terrible uh, temper and attitude towards losing, just couldn't stand it. And there were countless examples of me losing my rag on the sports field. And my poor parents who came to watch so many different matches and fixtures faithfully over and over again, had to endure this kind of behavior from me. It wasn't always like that. It wasn't always like that. But frankly, often it was. And one particular occasion sticks out for me. Uh, it's a school sports day in 1995, I think. So you begin to do the maths, if you like. And uh, I was running the last leg on the 4 by 100 meter relay on sports day. And I kind of fancy myself, really, as, the, as pretty much the key man in the relay team. I thought of myself as a kind of a white, skinny Usain Bolt, as it were. And as far as I was concerned, all that Joel Harrison had to do on the third leg was get that baton into my hand, and I would see it home, and we'd be fine. And there was Joel. He came round the top bend of the third leg. He was neck and neck with one other guy. I was like, Joel, get me that baton. No problem at all. I will see us home. Unfortunately, when Joel and I came to hand over the baton, we dropped it. We did what most British teams seem to do in most Olympic and World Championship events. We dropped the baton. And of course, once you drop the baton, you are out of the race. And I can remember vividly having to pick this baton up. And of course, you're disqualified, but you've got to kind of you know, jog over the line, haven't you, and get to the end. And I remember the rage just building up in me as I was making my way down the end of the race. And I remember vividly just flinging the baton into the ground. Now, the ground was a grassy athletics track, quite a firm grassy athletics track, but one that had a little bit of rain in the afternoon, which made for a nice skiddy surface. So as I flung this baton down, unbeknownst to me, rather than sticking in the grass, it actually skimmed off the grass and clattered this poor grandparent on the shin. <laughs> and I didn't really care about that, and I stalked off, basically swearing and cursing and absolutely disgracing myself. And then I saw my mum's face. I looked up and I saw my mother's face. A combination of embarrassment, familiarity, frankly, definite tear in the eye, upset, anger, lots of parents kind of not quite knowing what to say, so avoiding her. But actually, as I was contemplating that this week, it's the occasions like that are the occasions that I know with the most certainty that I was loved. Not because, <laughs> not because my parents ignored what happened, far from it. They made it very clear that that was not acceptable behavior. I was punished for what I did. But within all of that chaos and mess, not afterwards, within it, during it, they made it abundantly clear that they loved me, that they forgave me, that they were for me, that they believed in me. Not well, ages afterwards, in the midst of it. And so, as I look back on that, I think, how could I be in any doubt that my parents loved me when they loved me then? That makes sense. I look back, of course I'm loved by my parents, because they loved me when I was like that. They loved me when I was at my absolute worst. Cursing, foul-mouthed, immature, selfish, frankly, no redeeming features whatsoever, and they loved me in that moment. And so, of course, I know I'm loved by my parents. Not because they told me, well done, when it went right, although they did, but because they told me they loved me when it went wrong. And this, I think, is what Paul is getting at. You have no idea how much God actually loves you because you don't realize what you were when he first loved you. So second point this morning. If the problem is 
You don't know how much you're loved because you don't know how much of an enemy you were. The second point is, this is how much of an enemy you were. And what Paul does to help us see this slightly unpalatable concept, but remember why he's doing it, is he makes, I think, two quite logical arguments. The first argument that he makes is in verse 7. And he says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. And the argument he's making is, well, righteous in this sense means correct, means morally obedient, means does the right thing. And Paul's saying, I guess it's possible, but it's unlikely that you'll find someone who's going to die for that kind of person. It's not impossible, but it's unlikely that you would want to die for simply a morally obedient person. And then he says, but for a good person, meaning somebody who goes beyond that, who goes the extra mile, who does things out of love, who wants to do good to others, for that kind of person, hmm, I guess some people might, might die. And of course, there are wonderful stories, aren't there, throughout history, both in literary fiction and also in the reality of history of people giving themselves, giving their very lives for others. There's story after story throughout the ages of things like that. There's stories just in the last couple of years, just a couple for you. There's Arland William, who a couple of years ago, after his flight crash-landed on a frozen lake in America, he made sure that the one life ring that was available went to each of the other surviving passengers in turn. And a helicopter came back and forwards collecting one of the six, sorry, each of the six surviving passengers in turn, and Arla Williams refused to be the one that took the, took the ring, and the other five went after him, one after the other. And of course, when the helicopter returned, Arlen William had died from life for those that he was with. And if anything like me, you think, well... I might do that, maybe, if I was put, I don't really know, would I? With strangers in that situation, would I kind of put them first to the point of giving my life for them? I, I might do, but I, I, I don't know. Then there's Cheryl Anderson, she lives, who lived in Wales just last year. She was pregnant last year in 2014, and then she discovered that she had pretty horrendous cancer. And she realized, or she was told, that to have treatment for the cancer would inevitably harm her as yet unborn baby. So she refused to have the treatment for the cancer. And she gave birth to a healthy girl. But she herself died soon after. And if with that example, it might be that, especially for some of you mums, you might think, do you know what? In that situation, I think I would do that. I think I might do just what Cheryl did. I mean, one, one can't describe, can you, the, the unique bond there is between mother and an unborn child. So you might think, well, maybe I would give my life in that circumstance. So you have Cheryl giving her life for her daughter and Ireland for his fellow passengers. And like I say, there are many, many stories of people doing extraordinary things for loved ones or even strangers like Ireland when they find themselves in very difficult positions. But... The point is that when these people give their lives, they do so, and you've got to hear me right here, they do so feeling that they are doing it for, for good people or, or people that are worthy, as it were, that there's real value in the people they're giving their life for. Does that make sense? And that's kind of what Paul would agree with that and say, that's possible, humanity can do that. But then Paul gets a bit more challenging because he says, and you, in God's eyes, were far from that. 
You were far from being good or righteous in the eyes of God. You were nowhere near that. In fact, you were so far from that, you have no idea. And that's the second part of his logical argument. In verses 6 to 10, look at the way he builds up. In Paul's typically logical but very blunt way, Paul builds up just what we were. He says, we were weak, meaning we were weak spiritually in verse 6. And we're like, okay, yeah, I can, maybe I can digest that. He says, no, 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 you were ungodly in verse 6. Actually, verse 8, you were sinners. Verse 9, actually, you were more than that. You were under the wrath of God. Verse 10, you were an enemy of God. You were nowhere near being someone who was good in the eyes of God. You're so far from that. It's hard teaching that Paul gives. But remember his motivation. He's doing this to help us understand the extent, the breadth, the height of the love that God has for us. But what does it actually mean to be an enemy of God? What does that mean? Well, here I think is the, is the essence of it. You see, I know this is a little bit simplistic, but as far as I'm concerned, you're either an accident with no purpose or you're created by God. And if you're created by the creator God, then you belong to him. You owe him everything, if that's true. And so when you make decisions about how you're going to use your life, spend your life, how you're going to use your own body, how you're going to use your own gifts and your own talents and spend your own money, and frankly, you only have recourse to God when you're in trouble, some kind of prayer for help, unless you're willing to acknowledge his lordship over you, his ownership of you, his authority over you, you, just by living your life with very little reference to this creator God, are effectively substituting yourself for him. That's the essence of what the Bible calls sin. Taking upon ourselves prerogatives that are only God's. Basically, impersonating God, if you like. That's what Adam and Eve did right at the beginning of creation, right at the beginning of the Bible. The beginning of the creation story. Adam and Eve kind of set the template for this dynamic of the human heart. It's exactly what they do, don't they? They give in to the snake's temptation to be like God. It's exactly what they're tempted with. To be like God. Not continue to enjoy him, worship him, glorify him, but be like him is the temptation that they give in to. At this point, let's take a little pit stop. Because what about if, like me, you became a Christian when you were a child? Or you have children who've become a Christian as children or who are yet to become Christians, who are yet to decide that actually the, the truth of Jesus' death and re- resurrection is the truth they're going to put their hope into. Enemies of God when I was a child? Enemies of God with my... Ch- That's hard, isn't it? But if we just think about this definition that I'm giving, that to be an enemy of God is to put ourselves in opposition to him by changing places, by making ourselves like him. Now, I'm, I'm not a parent, but I have taught enough children and been around enough children to know they don't need much help to want to do things their way. Parents, am I right? They don't need instructing and teaching in wanting to do things how they want to do things. It's in our DNA right from the beginning to replace God with self and to put ourselves in his place. And so if you became a Christian as a child, that's wonderful. And what God did is he intervened in a wonderful way when you were on the path towards putting yourself in opposition to him. 
And you don't need to see children for very long to know that's how they will grow up, wanting to do things exactly how they wish to do it. One more different way to help us get this. Uh, in August of last year, a man in Norwich was arrested for impersonating, in August this year, sorry, he was arrested for pretending to be a police officer. Now, I looked at the story. He didn't really do anything. He didn't commit any crime as, as, as such. All he did was <laughs> nick a police uniform, have a fake ID card, and a BB gun in his pocket. They were the three things that he did. And he went to jail for 15 months. Now, why? Because we know that to impersonate a police officer is a serious offence. We know that the entire fabric and structure of our society would just crumble if we all went around impersonating police officers. It might be tempting, but that's what would happen. And that's what being an enemy of God means. We impersonate him. We put his clothes on ourselves. We set ourselves up in his place. And we chuckle, but if impersonating a police officer would fracture the structure and the order of society, impersonating God fractures the order of the cosmos and of our eternity. It's a sober thing to realize what we are outside of faith in Christ or what we were outside of faith in Christ. And Paul wants us to see that. He wants us to be sobered by that. Why? Because then you realize how loved you are. That's the paradoxical argument that he's making. We don't know how much we don't know how much we're loved because we don't know how much of an enemy we were. So final point. This is how loved you are. This is how loved you are. So Paul has used these points so far to show. He's trying to show us is when you were like this. So think back to me as that pretty miserable teenager. What a miserable specimen I was on those days. <laughs> Paul's saying, it's when you were like that, that God sent his son to die for you. When you were like that. Look at the phrases he uses. Verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You think back to those two stories of Arland and Cheryl that I told you before. Amazing, amazing acts of self-sacrifice on behalf of those two for very different reasons. And there are loads of those stories and they deserve all of the plaudits and the admiration and, uh, and the gratitude that they receive. But I couldn't find many stories of people well in advance deciding that they would go and die for those that hated them the most, or even those that passively ignored them. I couldn't find many of those stories. I couldn't find many stories of those who way, way before made a decision that they went right to the end of to die for those who hated them the most. I don't know any of those stories apart from one. There's only one story where somebody decided in eternity past that the solution to people's enmity with God was for God himself to suffer in their place. I know one story of where one person walked all the way through to the end of that path. That is what Paul wants us to feel and experience. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a wonderful post-war uh, 
Welsh preacher and theologian and writer, he says this, if while you were an enemy in his sight, God's attitude towards you was such that he sent his son to die for you, is it likely that his attitude now is going to change now that he regards you as one of his own? Let me read that again. If while you were an enemy in his sight, God's attitude towards you was such that he sent his son to die for you, is it likely that his attitude towards you is going to change now that he regards you as one of his own? When you get this, I think it has enormous implications. I really believe it has enormous implications. Implication one is for how the Christian treats the person who is not yet a Christian. When you understand just how loved you are in light of who you were, the implications for how we treat those who aren't yet Christians are massive, including those who are our enemies. Now, come on, you might not call them my enemy, but who's the person now that's come straight into your minds? That person. I can barely tolerate them, if I'm honest, let alone love them. Come on, who's that person? Person at work, person at school gates, person on the platform that keeps nicking your seat at Norberton Station, whoever it might be. There's people like that, aren't there? This gospel has enormous implications for the enemy in our life. Because when the gospel, this gospel, gets deep into us, it starts to change our mindset. And this gospel gives me a mindset that says to that person that I cannot stand, or worse, who's wounded me, let me down, betrayed me. This gospel puts a mindset in my head that tells me or that makes me live like this. Listen, I was an enemy too. And I received off the scale love. See how the gospel shifts your mindset? When you're faced with people like that, you live with a mindset that says, I, I was an enemy too. I, I, didn't, I didn't receive what I deserved. What I deserved, as Paul tells me, was the wrath of God. I didn't receive that. I received the love of God when I was like that has enormous implications. Who is the enemy in your life? It might not be a dramatic thing. It might be the deepest thing that goes to the core of who you are. That person who has wounded you in a way that you couldn't even begin to describe. Hear me, you were that person when Jesus died for you. That's hard. But when you get this, it just begins to transform everything like the gospel should. Implication number two, the confidence of the Christian. The confidence of the Christian rockets when this gospel begins to sink deeper and deeper. Because this gospel tells me, God, you loved me when I was like that. And then, and then you clothed me in all of the robe, the perfection and the righteousness and the goodness and the approval of Jesus. So how much more do you love me now? So I wake up every single morning to the incredible love. The confidence of the Christian should be sky high. The poise of the Christian should be the defining characteristic of our demeanor. The poise of the Christian. Humble because I was an enemy of God and he loved me then. Confident because I was an enemy of God and he loved me then. And I wake up every single morning to the same love, not just that he felt for me then, but that he feels for Jesus. 
So like we heard last week, the approval that the Father has for Jesus is the approval that a Christian wakes up to every single morning because he and she is in Christ. A Christian should be confident. A Christian should have their chin high, their shoulders back, their chest out. Not in pride and arrogance, I've got no reason for that, but in confidence. I was loved by the eternal God when I was at my worst, or when I was a child and on the way to being my worst. The poise of the Christian. Implication number three is for how we treat sin in our lives. Or to paraphrase Paul's description of sin, the stuff that so easily entangles and stops us running hard after God. That stuff has implications for how we treat that stuff. Because again, this gospel tells me God knew me and chose to love me and save me when I was at my worst. He loved me then. He's seen me at my worst. So my dad and my mum, they have seen me at my worst. Foul-mouthed, abusive, immature, selfish, drunk, grief, heartbroken, everything. They've seen it all. And they love me. So therefore they love me every day. And I've no need to be anything but transparent in front of them. Because they've seen it at its worst. The Christian demeanor is the same when it comes to God. There is no need to hide anything from him or, frankly, anybody else. Because the creator of the universe made the decision in time past to see me at my worst, love me at my worst, and save me at my worst. So I live transparent, authentic life in front of God and therefore in front of everybody else. Why should I hide anything when I have a God who's seen me at my worst and loved me then? Sin is really serious. So serious that God makes an enemy of those who continue in it all the way through their lives. That's how serious it is in his eyes. So the Christian takes it seriously, knows that it's the stuff that entangles me and stops me living and running after God. But I also know that he loved me at my worst and so I confess it to him freely, knowing that the approval that he feels on Jesus is mine every single morning. So I live a transparent life and an authentic one in front of him and others. The final implication is for the person who's, in my language, yet to cross the line of faith in Jesus Christ. Yet to cross that line where you say, I don't know all the answers, but I do know that Jesus' death and resurrection was done and achieved on my behalf, and I put my trust in that. A person who's yet to cross that, that line, this gospel, if it's true, has enormous implications for you. And I would invite you, as we share communion shortly, to consider the nature of this God that you've heard about this morning. One who will not ignore our decision to set ourselves up in his place. Whether we speak like Stephen Fry spoke recently on that interview and, and, and overtly set ourselves up as an enemy of God. He said, God, you are capricious, evil-minded. That's a dramatic way of setting ourselves up as an enemy of God. But we can do it much more subtly than that. We just quietly put upon his clothes and do our thing and take the prerogatives that are only his. God will not ignore that decision. But consider also the nature of God who extends the most loving hand of friendship you can imagine in the midst of that. 
so glad that God doesn't wait for us to dust ourselves down and clean ourselves up and then reach out a hand of friendship. He reaches out when we're at our worst. I remember my dad telling me, I love you, as I got in the car having disgraced myself that day. And I was still angry and immature and foul-mouthed. I wasn't ready to... Yes, I love you, Philip. God does not ignore. He will not ignore our decision to set ourselves up in his place. And he extends the hand of friendship at the same time. Consider, I urge you, the nature of that God. I wonder if I can invite the, the band, Robin and Joe, who've already served us so brilliantly this morning, to come and join me. Uh, in a second, we're going to continue, like we do each week, sharing communion together. If you are that person who's yet to cross the line of faith, please feel under no obligation to share communion with us. And instead, I'd love you to consider what you've heard this morning. To grab the person next to you to speak to me or to Mark afterwards or the prayer team or the person that you came with. And for those of us that are Christians, I would love us to share this wonderful ritual together that we're doing each week of this broken bread, this broken body, and this spilt blood, this wine that we drink. Um, each week I want us to focus on a specific part of the gospel and to respond to that whilst we take communion. For all of us, for all of us, this is the gospel, that you and I are more sinful than we ever dared imagine, and at the same time, more loved than we ever dared dream. That's the gospel. And so as we take communion, I want us to reflect upon that. That Jesus' body was broken and his blood spilt because God poured out all of the appropriate wrath that every single enemy of his should have received and Jesus received it. And then he rose to life to award us everything that he won and purchased on the cross. Jesus absorbed God's wrath that we might know God's love. It's a wonderful, wonderful gospel. And as you're doing that, I want you to consider what are the implications for my life tomorrow? What are the implications for my workplace, for the life group that I'm in, for the school gates? What are the implications of this? What are the implications for that stuff that entangles me and stops me running hard after God? What are the implications for that nagging thought that I always get. Not good enough. I haven't prayed enough. I haven't read my Bible enough. I haven't shared the gospel enough. The implications of the gospel on those thoughts are they are not the inheritance of the Christian. The love and the approval of God is. I stand. What song are we going to sing? Let me pray. We have some time together, at least a couple of songs, maybe more, to receive communion. We can take our time doing that. It will, it will appear in time. We've got plenty of time to take it. So you can sing, you can pray, you can think, you can sit, you can do as you please and take communion when you're ready to do so. And we're going to sing a wonderful song called The Lord is My Shepherd. We thank you for all that you have achieved and accomplished. We thank you for the wonderful truth that it is to know and reflect upon what we once were because to do so 
really shows us how much you loved us. <laughs> Jesus, I'm amazed that you love me like that. I'm so grateful that you didn't wait for me to get my act together. That you came into the midst of it and extended the hand of friendship. I'm so grateful, Jesus, that you took sin so seriously. And I ask you to help me, to help us to take it seriously in light of the love and the approval that you have bestowed upon us in Christ. We love your gospel, Jesus. Help us to enjoy it, to respond to it, to walk with the poise that is deserving of a Christian who knows what they once were and who knows who they now are. <laughs>